This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Rob Breckenridge. On today's episode, a conversation about wrongful convictions with someone who knows the problem all too well. David Milgard spent more than two decades behind bars for a crime he didn't commit. Also, with a decision looming for Canada regarding Huawei and 5G, a bit of a curveball from the UK, which has opened the door to Huawei entering its 5G network. A closer look at the growth in Alberta's craft beer industry and just how sustainable that growth is, as we speak with beer writer Don Tess. Plus, a conversation about coping with grief and understanding mental illness, we speak with Liz Levine, author of the new book, Nobody Ever Talks About Anything But The End. a lot of sympathy for people behind bars people in prison if you're in prison it's because you did something uh to deserve it you belong there you're where you should be at least that's how we think of it right you get convicted of a crime you go to jail so people behind bars are there because they did something wrong they did something bad they're where they need to be and i suppose in theory that's true but the reality is not everybody behind bars is there because they did something bad in some cases people are there despite the fact that they did nothing wrong at all people are still are wrongfully convicted in our system and that's something that should concern all of us first of all because it's something that could happen to any of us there's no protection against being wrongfully accused and wrongfully convicted of a crime even if you want to just take a financial argument It's not cheap to keep somebody in prison. And then, of course, what often happens with some of these wrongful conviction cases is we end up paying out a lot of money in compensation after the fact. And just in terms of of the principles of justice, uh, that somebody who has done nothing wrong should not be punished, should not be locked up, should not have their freedoms taken away. And like I say, it is still a problem in our legal system today, even though we like to think it isn't. Well, somebody who knows all too well what can happen as a result of being wrongfully accused and wrongfully convicted of a crime is himself still fighting for change. David Milgard is a member of the Independent Review Board Working Group set up by the the government and the Prime Minister's commitment to create an independent commission, commission to review wrongful convictions and hopefully speed up the process of getting those who are behind bars for that reason, uh, back into their lives, back into freedom. Uh, There's an event happening at the University of Calgary this afternoon uh, involving the uh, Calgary John Howard Society, Pro Bono Students Canada, the University of Calgary chapter, and Cooper Rock Pictures. And David Milgard is the uh, keynote speaker of this event this afternoon. David Milgard, uh, who at just 17 was convicted of a murder that he was not involved in. David Milgard, who was wrongfully convicted and spent 23 years in prison before he was finally released in 1992. And he joins us on the line this afternoon to talk more about all of this. David, so great to have you with us here today. Welcome to the program. 
Thank you very much. I appreciate having the opportunity to talk about the situation. Right, and this is still an issue you're very active on. In fact, just recently, uh, you were appointed to this uh, independent review board group that's really kind of pushing the government to make some changes on this front. What, what kind of progress are we making, in your view, David? Well, at this point in time, I think that the, the important issue is that, you know, it seems to become a, a public thing. There's like a, a movement now, an innocence movement, that is uh, pushing the government to uh, act appropriately in the, in the cases of wrongful conviction, and they haven't been doing so. They they have a, a system, and which is still working, and I mean still not working, if that's the best way to say it. And until they actually get the uh, the new commission, which the prime minister now has mandated, uh, Mr. Lametti, the justice minister, uh, create, you know, the situation isn't helping out the people that are sitting behind bars right now that have done nothing wrong. Yeah, and that's the side of it. I mean, it's it's hard for Canadians to accept, I think, that, that there are today people behind bars who shouldn't be there, who were wrongfully convicted. I, I, maybe we think of it as, you know, a problem that used to exist but no longer does. That That's not the reality, is it? No, that's not the reality at all. There are many, many people sitting inside our prisons. Innocence Canada works very hard to try to bring cases uh, before the Minister of Justice with the system that doesn't work, which takes years and years and years to kind of proceed. And it's just a system that isn't, uh, doesn't have the accountability or the transparency that it needs to have to help out the people that need our help the most. And in some cases, these are men, these are women, and in some cases, actual children that have done nothing wrong. So how could this uh, independent commission, how, how could it make a difference then? Well, the first thing is that it's going to work uh, for people that uh, require any, any sort of assistance in getting their cases examined and, and investigated. And it's going to work very quickly. And once they have you know, demonstrated that they haven't done anything wrong, well, then it's going to release them. Under the present system, it doesn't work that way at all. You know, they'll spend years and years, five, ten years, you know, exhausting all their appeals and then going uh, into a, a system, whereas even once they are demonstrated to be completely innocent, well, then the, the Minister of Justice doesn't have the power to release these people. All he can do is send it back and have them start all over again to the, to the province or to the, to the, God, the appeal courts. It's ridiculous. It's not justice. It's just wrong. I mean, that's the, the most simplest way to say it. Yeah. It makes me ashamed to be a Canadian. Well, how does it happen? What, what is it about our system, then, that allows people to be convicted of something they didn't do? Well, there are many indications of, uh, of you know, people are saying, well, what's, what, are, what are the indications? The strongest one that I know of is the fact that, you know, people that maintain their innocence over a long period of time, well, people just don't do that inside prison. And when they actually do, it's quite possible that they're telling the truth, most likely that they're telling the truth. Because, I, yeah, I think... Witness yeah. reports, bad science, there's a there's a a whole bunch of different things. And that's what we'll be talking about today with the panel at the University of Calgary. There, there is that stereotype, I think, that people have in their minds that uh, everybody in prison claims that they're innocent. Everybody yeah, convicted claims they're that. innocent, right? You hear that all the time. I, I'm, I'm often asked that question. Well, you know, isn't it true that everybody inside prison maintains that they're not guilty? Well, they may do that for the first couple of weeks or maybe for the first month. But you're talking about people that have maintained their innocence for five years. 
That's terrible. That you know, parole boards just won't let them out because they say, "Well, you're not showing any remorse. You're not doing anything." They too have to do some evaluation of the situation and that particular indicator and say, "Okay, we're going to have to give this person maybe the benefit of the doubt that they might, in fact, be telling the truth." And you, you never got that, did you? No, the parole board treated me like real garbage. But they wanted you to show remorse. For a crime you never committed. Yeah, I was actually told to me that I should go into the parole board and I should lie and say that I'm guilty. And you know, the lady that was asking me to do so, you know, she was she was just trying to accomplish what she felt was important was to get me out. But I asked her straightforward. I said, "Well, would you go in there and would you say you're responsible for doing something so horrible?" And she looked at me and she said, yes, I think I would. Oh, I said, I won't. And I really don't think you would if you were in my, my situation. And I, I never did go into the parole board and say that I was guilty. I wonder if others have, though, right? I mean, because that's quite a dilemma for someone wrongfully convicted, sitting behind bars, just wanting to be free. And that temptation, right, of just admit it, just just show some well, remorse, it. right? It's the same sort of thing when you start talking about plea bargaining and the thousands and thousands of people. I'm talking thousands and thousands of people that are are innocent that for whatever reason they say, well, geez, whiz, you know, I'm going to plead guilty to this. I'm not going to have to fight for years. I'm not. And, you know, what are they left with? You know, how do they feel about the justice system? I'm pretty sure they're going to feel ashamed to be considered part of uh, a society that, that treats them like that. And I guess the, the scary thing is, too, that that's, it, it can happen to anybody, right? It does, and that's, that's the worst thing. I, you know, not only to all of us that are listening here, uh, I'm talking, but you're listening. You know, it can not only happen to you, it can happen to your children. And that's the problem. Under the present system, you know, we're really in a, in a bad situation. And we need to be more circumspect about what's going on in this country. Uh, to to many different people under many different circumstances, not just the the wrongful conviction situation, but you know realizing you know we have to stand up and we have to do something about things that are wrong. Always stand up and do something when you feel that there's something wrong taking place. That's the important thing there. And I, I pride myself on the fact that there are so many people in this country, you know, have those feelings about what's just and what's right. And because of those feelings, that I was actually freed through. You know, a lot of work on behalf of my mother who never gave up on me, who actually, you know, just received a, uh, an award there at the conference that we were having in Winnipeg just a while back, and I yeah. received it for her. Uh, so what's your message today? What, what, um, what do you want people to take away from this event? Well, I think the important thing to take away from this event is the fact that, you know, there's an awful lot of uh, excitement now, uh, you know, people are, are hopeful that, you know, this is something that's going to go forward. The commission is going to be developed. And uh, it's important for our group, uh, the Independent Review Board Working Group, uh, myself, uh, the two wrongfully convicted advisors, that's me and Ron Dalton, who is also the co-president of Innocence Canada. And we have Laurie Kuffner, that's a community board member, and Ruth Van Versen, and our chairman, is uh, James Lockyer, who had you know, fought an awful right. lot of uh, wrongful conviction cases. We are pushing and we are trying to make sure that everything moves quickly and it's done right. There are many different systems out there in the world that have done this, and there are some good things about them, and there are some bad things. And that's our starting point, to take the good 
and try to correct the bad and see where we are going to go with all of this. So when are we expecting a decision from the government? A decision, well, the decision has been made by the Prime Minister to tell his Minister of Justice to go forward and move quickly on this. But what kind of a timeline, I guess, are we on, do you think? Well, many people have different different, uh, kind of ideas in that regard. I, I really want to see that while the Prime Minister is still the Prime Minister, and this has been mandated that we proceed as quickly as possible to have this thing created, you know, prior to any possible change in government. Well, we'll keep a close eye on it. Uh, more at InnocenceCanada.com, by the way. Uh, more in your case and uh, the other work they're doing there. Uh, David, thank you so much for making some time for us here today. Really do appreciate this. Well, you're welcome. It was nice to talk to you. Bye. All right. Take care. David Milgard, of course, uh, was wrongfully convicted of rape and murder. 1970 was uh, released from prison in 1992, officially exonerated in 1997. So such a big part of his life dominated by this. Uh, he's the keynote speaker at this event happening this afternoon, the Wrongful Conviction Awareness Panel involving the uh, Calgary John Howard Society, Cooper Rock Pictures, and Pro Bono Students Canada, the U of C chapter. Even though the Huawei issue is, is kind of off the front burner, it hasn't gone away. And there's a couple of looming decisions that, that will bring it back. There's a decision pending on Meng Wanzhou and her extradition to the United States to face charges there, of course, uh, the daughter of the company's founder and the chief financial officer for Huawei. And then there's the question of Canada's decision about whether to allow Huawei to be a part of building up a 5G network in this country. Now, the United States position is pretty clear. They see Huawei as too closely connected to the Chinese government. They see Huawei as a security threat. And they would appreciate it then if their intelligence allies saw it the same way. Now, Canada is part of the five eyes. Uh, That's the U.S., Canada, U.K., Australia, New Zealand. Now, Canada, of course, not just being a close ally of the United States. I mean, our our communications are, are very much intertwined. So it's a big decision Canada has to make, and it's either going to to upset the Chinese or the Americans. Did the United Kingdom possibly give us some cover today, though? The United Kingdom has decided to to partially allow Huawei into its 5G network. Uh, when asked about it today, this is what Innovation Minister Navdeep Baines had to say. We're just being very thoughtful and very deliberate. We want to do our appropriate due diligence uh, to make a decision that is in the best interest of Canadians, and we want to make sure we go about it in the appropriate manner. To what extent, the time? Consideration, the political consideration is playing out in this? Like, are you getting some pressure from the United States? Is it playing at all? Well, engaging in our allies is to understand what approaches they are taking. So, of course, there's a political dimension to it from that perspective. But we have been very clear that we're going to take the appropriate time that we need to make a decision that's in the best interest of Canadians to make sure that they feel safe and secure. Uh, Meanwhile, and and not everyone's on board with this in the UK, even within the uh, Conservative government. Former Brexit Secretary David Davis, uh, not too happy. First off, let's look at who Huawei are. They're founded by a member of the People's Liberation Army, an ex-engineer there, long-standing links to the Communist Party. They're bound by 2017 laws telling them to take orders from their intelligence agencies. Last year, the Chinese Politburo said they wanted to dominate the cyber markets of the world by 2025 and therefore drive out the other players, basically Ericsson and Nokia. So that's the first problem. You're facing an aggressive uh, player in this who wants to get inside our network. 
Well, joining us for some further thoughts on all of this, very pleased to welcome in the program here this afternoon, Jonathan Berkshire Miller, uh, Deputy Director and Senior Fellow of the McDonald Laurier Institute, a Senior Fellow with the, Jap- uh, the Japan Institute of International Affairs, and a Distinguished Fellow with the Asia Pacific Foundation. Mr. Miller, thanks for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks, Rob. Thanks for having me. All right. So what impact do you think this, this uh, decision in the UK has on, on Canada's pending decision? Well, I think it could have an impact, but I think this decision uh, process, uh, we were long expecting um, what was going to happen in the UK. We were seeing this kind of play out. A lot of leaks were happening on the UK's potential decision process. I think there's a couple things to kind of um, to, to put in mind here. I mean, yes, the UK shares with Canada, um, New Zealand, and Australia the Five Eyes connection with the US, but I think what separates us a little bit is our as you mentioned in your introduction, our you know even closer relationship in security intelligence terms and especially telecommunications terms, I think this becomes a fundamentally difficult situation for Canada. Uh, in addition, of course, you lump in some of the the other challenge that we've had with China recently, in particular um, the two Michaels who are continuing to be held hostage in China. So I think there's a number mm-hmm. of different uh, layers that Canada has to think about when it uh, makes its decision. It's interesting because I, I think we've looked at the question as either you know yes or no. Either we're going to say yes or say no to Huawei. There, there seem to be some who suggest that Britain has found something in between. But is there really an in between when it comes to Huawei? Well, see, this is a challenge, and I think there's a couple. You know, we're only as strong as our as our weakest link. And I think some of the arguments that the UK has made, essentially, in the bargain that they've effectively made, is that there's a difference between investments in the core parts of their 5G network and the peripheral parts. And I think what the the decision that they've effectively made is is saying that we're going to ban Huawei from the core elements and also from networks and uh, architecture infrastructure that's close to some of our national security sites, but and peripheral areas that we're, we're, we're willing to work with them. I think the counter-argument to that is there, especially in these new 5G networks, there is no, there's a blurring of the lines between the peripheral components and the core components, and that it doesn't necessarily matter if you only ban from the core, but you need to actually look at uh, the, the potential for backdoors and the peripheral components as well. So I think that's uh, one element. The other key element here is that from a pure reciprocity uh, element, uh, the Chinese have uh, funded uh, Huawei with billions, tens of billions of actually subsidy, government subsidies. So, so from a market competition perspective, um, they've been given an unfair advantage that uh, we do definitely do not have in the Chinese market. So that's the reason why they've been able to succeed. Well, yeah, and I think that's been one of the issues that's come up is just how far ahead they are uh, in in terms of being able to provide this. And, you know, we obviously want to make sure then that we've got, uh, you know, reliable 5G network. I mean, maybe they can deliver that. But as you say, I mean, we cannot ignore these security concerns either. Yeah, you know, it's always at what cost. So uh, there's I think there's a bit of a false narrative out there, too, that there is no other competition. In fact, there is other competition. There's uh, Ericsson and Nokia, which are also uh, on the 5G game and have uh, secured many different contracts with uh, with different countries on providing F5G networks. They are at a higher cost point, uh, and they are not quite developed at the speed of, of Huawei. But what I would say is when you, when you um, bundle in the national security uh, concerns that they have, and also the mitigation concerns. So as part of the UK strategy, and, and if Canada takes a takes a line similar to the UK, that there will be quite a number of costs that will be and uh, evergreen costs, uh, frankly, on um, risk mitigation. Uh, so that's uh, that has to be built into any uh, cost analysis of this. Uh, yeah. So, like, I mean, putting aside everything else, as you say, I mean, the the American factor is a big one. There's the relationship with China that's a big one, but. But, I mean, we need to look at it from our own 
perspective too and and from a canadian perspective just in terms of our interests and our security interests how do we approach this and and should canada aside from whatever pressure we're getting from anyone else be concerned about huawei well i think we should in the sense of and this and uh, you know there are a lot of different arguments that you can kind of make on this and i think one of the there are a lot of technical ones that have have a lot of validity what we just discussed a little bit about the difference between the core and periphery, but to make it even simpler, and I think this is really a simple uh, issue of trust. And basically, one of the core uh, arguments against including Huawei in our 5G networks is about essentially the trust of the regime. So in 2017, with uh, China's national intelligence law that effectively requires companies such as Huawei to share in, um, information if it's for national security intelligence purposes, we just don't have the trust that uh, that, uh, that this will not be utilized. Um, you know, so it's, I almost don't blame Huawei as a private company itself, but I, I, I you know, it's the reality of the situation that it's dealing with and uh, and the regime that it uh, it works under. But there are political considerations, and I, I think you know we've seen that, that the government is is cautious when it comes to to offending the Chinese, and certainly we don't want to put the two Michaels in any more danger or put other Canadian citizens in any more danger. I mean, we can't give any country, and China included, obviously, a veto over our, our important decisions or to send a message that that kind of intimidation is is going to work. But I mean, how how does the government balance those concerns? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's definitely a factor, and obviously we want to, and I think we can uh, strike the balance of having a pragmatic uh, relationship with China, but I mean, that should be one that doesn't encumber our uh, national security interests. So, I mean, the difference here, and I think why this is a different investment than some of the other uh, foreign investments that have been scrutinized over the years, um, uh, especially coming from China, is that this is a long-term game. So this is not, um, you know, a strategic investment in the energy sector or or um, one in the ports or something like that. Would, which have other implications, but this is something that is vital to the future of the economy. I mean, the economy is going digital. Five uh, G is going to be at the forefront of that. So this is uh, this is bigger than your your normal foreign investment screening, and uh, it has profound consequences. Uh, there are cost benefits. There might be a speed benefits, but we have to think in the long term. Once we make this investment, it's not one that you can uh, quickly claw back from. That's a good point. Well, a decision is looming. We'll find out what it is soon enough, I suppose. Much more at mcdonaldlaurier.ca. Jonathan, thanks so much for joining us here today. Appreciate the insight. Thanks so much, Rob. All right, take care. Uh, Jonathan Berkshire Miller is Deputy Director and Senior Fellow at the McDonald laurier Institute, also a Distinguished Fellow of the Asia-Pacific Foundation, Senior Fellow with the Japan Institute of International Affairs. So, yeah, I mean, look, this is a security issue. Canada has its own concerns. It's not just about what the Americans want us to do or what the Brits are going to do or what the Chinese want us to do. Yeah, we got to look at it from our own perspective. Our latest Alberta Matters series from Global News is looking at what we're calling the booze boom, the explosion in Alberta's craft beer industry uh, and the challenges it now faces going into 2020. It's certainly a competitive market can make it challenging for some small breweries to, to stand out. Uh, a few have had to close their doors, unfortunately. More in this report here from Global's Adam McVicker. There are currently 123 craft breweries registered in the province. At least five have closed in the past year. According to the Alberta Small Brewers Association, the biggest challenge is finding a unique brand and standing out in the crowd. That has many breweries like 88 Brewing in Calgary coming up with unique marketing like their look with a neon tribute to the 1988 Olympics, hoping to win loyal drinkers with nostalgia and quality. But Alberta Beer 
beer experts do anticipate a slowdown in new craft brewery openings this year because of the oversupply in the market. Despite that, the Small Brewers Association hopes to keep the foot on the gas, riding momentum from the industry's expansion over the last decade. Adam McVicker, Global News. Look, I mean, there's no magic number for how many breweries should exist in the province Alberta size. And, you know, the market will sort these things out, just like when it comes to, you know, the number of restaurants in Calgary. There, there's no magic number. The market will, will decide those things. I mean, it is a challenge for any business right now, you know, convincing Albertans to, to part ways with their money. Uh, craft beers are not only competing against each other, but they're competing against the big breweries. And I guess maybe to some extent they're competing with other things. Now, there were some stats out last month suggesting that uh, alcohol sales are down a bit as a result of legalized cannabis. So a lot going on for the industry. But I think it's been encouraging to see the growth of this industry and the establishment of a real craft brewing scene here in our province. Well, someone who follows all these matters very closely is uh, Don Tess. He's a beer writer. You can find him on Twitter at the Don of Beer. Also more at beers2you.ca. Don, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Happy to be here. Well, in terms of this, you know, this question of whether this industry can keep growing, how do you come at that question? I think, um, I, I think absolutely the, uh, the industry can keep growing. Uh, it, you know, statistically for the last 20, 30 years now, it, it has grown. That rate of, of growth has slowed, but it is still growing. Uh, last number I heard was around 4% growth. Um, which isn't a huge number, you know, back, uh, a few years ago, numbers were growing 15, 18% a year, but, uh, there are a heck of a lot of industries that would love to grow at 4%. So, mm-hmm. so 4% nothing to, uh, nothing to sneeze at. Right. And I mean, obviously some are doing better than others and, and that's to be expected, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. I mean, it, it is at the end of the day a business. It's a, it's an industry and everybody needs to make money and, and, um, you know, there are ways to, to, to do well and there are ways to do poorly uh, within any uh, uh, industry. The movie industry makes lots of money and lots yeah. of movies lose money. Yeah, exactly. That's just the way it is. Yeah, I think it's a good analogy. And I mean, yeah, look, maybe there's, there's some luck involved or, you know, sort of striking gold either in an idea, a concept, a particular beer or a certain brand. Uh, you know, there, there are those X factors that come into play. But what, what have you seen that, you know, the smart ones have done well or... You know, maybe the the lessons that some have had to learn the hard way. I think um, I think uh, a lot of people. I think the, the breweries that have succeeded are the ones that do bring something new and interesting and yet familiar to people. So um, you know, uh, the craft beer drinker does tend to want to want the, the newest flavor, something interesting and different. But if it's too crazy, yeah. then there seems to be a bit of, of backlash against that. So it's, it's riding that fine line, and then that line is a line that, that is always moving, too. So, so riding that fine line and moving with that line it is, is kind of the key to success. Mm-hmm. It's interesting, too, because, I mean, they, you've got some craft brewers that are really focused on getting their product uh, on, on store shelves, right? And that's, that's what their market is. Other small breweries, you know, really try to, to establish themselves more like brew pubs, right? Where they're, they're the location, they're kind of the, the neighborhood hub. That's where people come for their product. Uh, do, do we see a lot of both in Alberta's market? Yeah, so, you know, the Alberta, the Alberta beer industry is relatively young, and I think a lot of the breweries are kind of sorting out uh, where they belong in that market. I think both of those, uh, those business models that you talk about are, are viable, and I think new breweries now need to decide, you know, are, are, 
am I going to open a gigantic brewery and try and take on, uh, you know, try and take market share away from, from Budweiser and, and most Canadian, or am I going to be that little, um, the, that little neighborhood pub that just happens to make its own beer? And both of those are viable. It's just like, you know, you were, um, in the intro, you were talking, you draw an analogy with, uh, restaurants you know mm-hmm. there's there's mcdonald's and right. <laughs> they are successful yeah and then your neighborhood little um you know vietnamese restaurant or, or taqueria you know that's that's a fine business model as well yeah that's a good point uh we, we have had you know certainly government support for this industry all right and and the industry has grown as a result of policy changes i mean a lot of this goes back even to 2013 2014 uh, previous government took a certain approach. New government has come in with a different kind of approach. I think through it all, there's still been support for the industry, but there's been a lot of policy changes. What's your sense of you know the impact of of those changes or those policies? I think uh, they, they, by and large have been positive. I think that the, a lot of people have um, been able to open breweries that that wouldn't have been able wouldn't have been able to, other than some of the changes over the last few years. But you know you. It's a double-edged sword because um, it is it it is a uh, heavily graded, heavily regulated industry. Sorry, yeah. um, and you you just don't know. Um, you know, I, I can think of you mentioned again in your intro that there are a couple of breweries that that uh, closed in the last year, and you know, I can think of one that that would definitely point uh, the finger at a regulatory change that 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 was difficult for it to swallow. So you know. All change creates winners and losers, and 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 uh, you know regular regulatory change helps a lot of people, and unfortunately sometimes it hurts some people too. So. Yeah, it's interesting too. I mean, you know, with with some of the success and some of the growth in the industry, you know, can create kind of a. a almost like a tipping point for, for some of them. I mean, Big Rock was kind of the original. They're sort of seen more as almost a, a big brewery now. Uh, Wild Rose, uh, same kind of thing. They, they grew to the point where one of the global giants uh, took some interest and, and, and bought them up. Um, so you, you are seeing that too, right? I mean, those, those challenges of growth and, and, and how much do you cling to, to being that, that small craft brewery and how much do you embrace that success? Yeah, it's and that's a you know I think it's a lot. It's really tough for a lot of, of breweries who, you know, maybe go into the business because they're passionate about beer. Then then they're successful, which is great. And then people go, well, you could be more successful if you did this. And I think just like any other business, people have to ask themselves, you know, how big do I want to be? What do I want to do? And, and, and a lot of the times, these are small business owners who haven't necessarily thought of, of a succession plan. So maybe, you know, what are they going to do after, you know, Wild Rose is in the business for decades. Mm-hmm. Uh, Big Rock has been in the in the business for decades. They, they eventually went public, of course. Um, and so, uh, you know, uh, Wild Rose was successful enough, uh, lucky enough to to draw the attention of a multinational and, and sold last year. And, um, but, but what that means for, you know, a small brewery now, opening its doors now, who knows? Who knows if that if that opportunity will be available to them, who knows if that, if they'll want to take that opportunity, if it becomes available to them. Um, but you know, it's, these aren't new questions. It's, it's new for the beer industry because the beer industry is, 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 is growing and maturing. But, yeah. but you know, this is a question every entrepreneur asks, asks themselves. You know, one thing I'll say, and as you say, I mean, it's still a relatively new industry, but I think it's, it's come a long ways in terms of quality that Alberta can hold its own. You see Alberta beers, 
um, you know, standing out at some of these national awards. I, I think for a long time we were kind of compared to BC, that we were way behind BC, and a lot of BC breweries were doing some amazing stuff. Uh, you know, I, I think we're more than holding our weight now. What do you think? Oh, absolutely. So, you know, the number one IPA in Canada two years in a row comes from Calgary by a uh, brewery called Outcast. Um, a brewery out of Red Deer, Troubled Monk, uh, won a silver medal in the world at the World Beer Cup, which um, uh, is is actually the, the largest beer competition in the world. They won a silver for their open road brown ale. Uh, so, yeah, we, we are very fortunate here that... that um, that uh, the breweries that did open, that have opened, have really gone up that learning curve fast, and they're producing world-class beer. Yeah, that's a great point. Well, much more is mentioned. Beers to you, Ca. You're on Twitter as well at the Dawn of Beer. Don, so great to have you with us here. Thanks so much for spending some time with us here today. Thank you very much. All the best to you. Uh, that is Don Tess, a beer writer, the Don of Beer. You can find him on Twitter, as mentioned, his website, beers to you. Ca. His thoughts uh, on kind of where the industry is at. It's grown by leaps and bounds for sure. We begin this hour with a conversation about, about death, conversation about mental illness, right? Some heavy topics, but it's important to have conversations around all of this. And I think there, there are different ways of doing so. In fact, uh, uh, our next guest in her new book, described by the Globe and Mail as haunting and filled with dark humor. It's an honest and calm look at the chaos of life. And I think we can all speak to that, that term, the chaos of life, and how we try to get through it. But ultimately, as mentioned, this is a, a story about grief, and in particular, the death of two people very close uh, to, to our next guest. Uh, her name is Liz Levine, a TV and film producer and author of the book, Nobody Ever Talks About Anything But the End. Liz, thank you so much for making some time for us here today. Welcome to the program. My pleasure. Thanks, Rob. Uh, this is obviously a, a deeply, deeply personal book, uh, and, and I, I would imagine for you there, there was a lot involved in, in writing this and going back and thinking about all of these things, but what, what prompted you to write this in the first place? Um, about eight weeks after my sister took her own life, I was at a live storytelling event, and I told a story called The Easter Bunny, which is in the book and the impact on the room and the people who heard it was so significant that I really realized that people weren't talking about any of these things enough. And that was the impetus to start me on my way. And did that, that include you up until that point? Was this really something you even talked much about? I would say it definitely did include me. You know, I lost my first love at 29 and it's so rare to have lost someone so close at that age that I found my peers didn't know how to engage on the subject. And I really, you know, put it away for almost a dozen years until my sister's passing and the telling of this story and ultimately the realization that we all needed to talk. Yeah. And, and so in this instance, so two deaths, two people very yeah. close to you, um, one a death from cancer, the, the other a death as a result of, of suicide. And it is interesting how differently we treat what are both really, in a way, essentially illnesses. Absolutely. I mean, that, for me, was the rationale of putting these two deaths side by side in this book so that we really could understand that suicide is the result of a disease and an illness and 
that is mental health. And we needed to lay it up against something like cancer that we're all so clear on in this day and age to be able to really start seeing it that way. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. And and you talk about in the book, I mean, in trying to understand what what was going on with your sister, right? And and, and maybe not realizing for a long time what this was or what to call this. What what was your process like then and really coming to grips with and, and understanding what it was she was dealing with? I mean, we really finally understood and had language around her illness, which was paranoid with psychotic delusions, only months less than a year before her death. And so it was really just in in the aftermath that I could begin to dive down a Google rabbit hole and have conversations and begin to understand what this illness truly, truly was for her. It's, I mean, the challenge, too, is that we, we don't always save everybody. And, and cancer, it's a little more understandable that maybe sometimes we can, sometimes it's, it's just impossible. But when it comes to helping someone struggling with mental illness, I don't know. I mean, it should be, we should have more success. Why, why, why weren't they able to save your sister? You know, I have spoken about this in early interviews as well, but I think that the system around mental health is still lacking a lot of the language we have around physical health care and diseases. So cancer we can identify as stage one or stage four or metastatic or colon or, and it helps us really sort of delineate and know that we cannot cure or save. And with mental health, that language is relatively new. We're all still learning to speak those words out loud. And I think that's also reflected in a mental health care system that is full of gaps. So for my sister, Tamara, she was so bright and so articulate that she got bounced from one specialist or one doctor to another, to a group therapy, to a something else. She was really able to maintain the stories and delusions that were a part of her mental illness and sort of skirt through the middle. She didn't have one healthcare provider who was dedicated to sticking by her through this process. Mm-hmm. The issue of stigma, uh, that's a big part of this. And I know tomorrow, in fact, is, is uh, Bell's Let's Talk Day. And I mean, that, that's, I think there's some, some deliberate uh, timing in the release of this book to coincide yeah. with that, I believe. But uh, th- that's a big part, I think, of what you're doing here and, and kind of the way you approach this in terms of how you lay the book out and in terms of injecting humor into this conversation. A big part of it is about eroding and, and eliminating that stigma, isn't it? Absolutely it is. And, you know, before my sister took her life, she put out a Facebook post that said, I've been diagnosed with this and I've been struggling and there is a lot of shame and I am putting this out to help reduce the stigma around these things. So I guess this is my way of carrying that message forward for her. Because what what do you hope people get from this book or take away from this book? I hope mostly that people get permission to talk about these things, to cry about these things, but also I think maybe most uniquely to laugh about these things so that they can be conversations that are truly and deeply shared. And I think all of that starts with language. 
you know, when it comes to, you know, mental illness and, and what your sister was dealing with, and then, you know, the, the impact it has on others, because for a lot of people, I mean, grief can, can be the starting point for their own spiral in, mm-hmm. into these issues, right? That it's almost, uh, you know, it, it feeds upon itself in a way, doesn't it? Absolutely, it does. It becomes a cycle that we break out of only in understanding that this is shared. It is. Um, and, and ultimately, you know, part of what you're doing here is about sharing the story of these people and, and who they were. And that includes your sister, right? Because, you know, life matters and, and lives should be celebrated. Absolutely. Uh, the book is called Nobody Ever Talks About Anything But the End. And, and just two for you, Liz. I mean, like I said at the, at the outset, this is all very, very raw, very personal for you. Did you find this process cathartic in a way? Was it more difficult than you thought it would be? I think that for me, writing is an act of sense-making, and it's cathartic in in that way of self-discovery and beginning to understand the world around you. And of course, that comes with the vulnerability of feeling quite exposed in some of these moments. But knowing that if I can step up and do that, maybe I'm giving other people the courage or the space to do the same. That's very important. Again, it's called Nobody Ever Talks About Anything But The End. Liz Levine, thank you so much for joining us here today. Really appreciate this. Thanks, Rob. A pleasure. All right. Uh, that is Liz Levine, uh, TV and film producer, author. Her latest book is called Nobody Ever Talks About Anything But The End. Uh, so personal story for her and in coping with and trying to understand the deaths of two people very close to her. Her best friend and first love and her sister. Very different circumstances, but for her, it's grieving both of those deaths, trying to understand both of those deaths. And then in particular with her sister, going back and trying to understand what it was she was dealing with. Uh, and why, why she, why others weren't, weren't able to help her. Um, so very moving book, very personal, but uh, as mentioned, with some, uh, some humor injected into to the conversation as well. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.